take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 22. The, the title of this four-week series is Christmas Songs, and it might be a little deceptive. I'm not going to preach Christmas songs. Uh, I'm not going to go through some of the traditional carols and preach them, though that's a really neat idea that I might do someday. That's not what I'm doing today. I, I struggled with We've been on our, I've been preaching from our readings every week and struggled with what I was going to do to continue that and, and I was reading through Samuel and it goes on into Kings and I, I could have said something about David and him being the however many great grandfather of Jesus and you know we could have gotten into a little bit of Solomon but it, it just, it wasn't, didn't feel right and so I started looking at the Psalms. No, noticed, rather, that, hey, we're, we're reading psalms as well, and started looking at them and thought, maybe these are all psalms that are going to talk about the manger or something, and they're not <laughs> at all. There are no prophecies in, in the psalms about the manger. There's some talk about the Messiah being human, but that was about it. And I'm like, well, Lord, that's not where I'm going to go. Okay, what am I going to do? And he began to speak to me, and I heard uh, the the, 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 or felt the leading to, to look at the Psalms again. And, and what we're doing for the next four weeks is each of these Psalms will be from our reading, and we are going to look at the Psalm backwards. Rather than looking at the Psalm and how it talks about what's going to happen, we're going to look at that too, we're going to look backwards through the lens of Christmas, or as I said on the um, the screen, Psalms through the eyes of Christmas. What do these Psalms, how do these Psalms carry a meaning for us today because of Christmas? Now, I'd be a horrible preacher if, if we didn't look at what the Psalm meant for the writer and for the intended audience of the day. And remember that the Psalms was, uh, the, the book of the Psalms was the, the worship manual, the worship book for temple and tabernacle worship. So we are looking at songs, we're reading songs, but we're looking at them now with a little different eyes. And rather than looking at them the way David and his readers and the participants did that day, looking forward, hoping for something, we get to experience the hope and look backward. So that's what we're going to be doing through these four psalms, 22, 23, um, 130, I think is what I said. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. And, uh, and Psalm 150, the last psalm, the Sunday before Christmas. Now, the, the psalms, these, these psalms that I've chosen, well, I didn't choose them. These psalm, well, psalms that we're reading aren't prophecy songs, right? They're there, the, this particular one, Jesus used, the New Testament uses three different places uh, in, in talking about Jesus. Jesus quotes it, it quotes 22.1 when he's on the cross, and then we see some other things. But they're not prophecy in the same way that the prophets were prophecy. They are just scripture, I say just scripture, they are scripture that Jesus fulfilled. So, so we're not reading them as prophecy, and I don't want to 
do something. I don't want to shoehorn these psalms into an idea that the psalms didn't have, didn't intend. So I'm not going to make one-to-one comparisons of, okay, this, I might do it a little bit, but, but I won't tell you this is what they intended anyway, comparisons of what happened on Christmas morning, the day of Jesus' birth, and what is mentioned in the psalm is exactly, you know, we're not doing that sort of thing. What we're going to hear as we read through these psalms, hopefully, is God answering the psalm with Jesus. In today's psalm, Psalm 22, it's a lament. Uh, It's it's a cry of anguish, first 21 chapters. And we're going to read that as such, but but we're going to see how Christmas answers the lament, and even how the psalm anticipated an answer, if not the answer in the manger, an answer from the Lord. So we're going to do our best to do justice to the text, not do anything weird, see what David was saying to the reader, see what God is saying to us, and see how that illuminates or is illuminated by the celebration that we are having for this next month in the coming of Jesus. So we, we remember, we've learned, we, we see it everywhere, that when Jesus entered uh, the world, when God in Christ entered our world, he divided time into before him and after him. And we, we use the abbreviations B.C.A.D., uh, before Christ, and Anno Domine, uh, year of our Lord. Now, even... Even secularists who, who don't want to use Jesus in, in, in their terminology still say B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. They're, they're acknowledging what they won't acknowledge, basically. They're, they're saying, yeah, there was a division in time way back then. We don't really care for the reasoning, but we're going to go with it, but we're just going to call it something else. Regardless of what we call it, God in Christ divided time. And that's how we date everything. We are in year 2020 roughly because of Jesus' birth. Zero wasn't the year. It was probably 4 B.C., but y'all can Google that and read why that's the case. But, but nonetheless, we, we call our year. We're having a horrible 2020 and not a horrible 6,481 Because of Christ. That sounds weird. If you take that clip out, if you take that sentence out of context, Michael said we're having a horrible year because of Jesus. But don't. That's not what I said. Context, right? That matters. So we're 2020 because of Jesus. Now, just like Christ split time, when God in Christ enters our lives, he divides our lives into before him and after him. Most of us can look and, and point to the time, if not the exact moment, the exact day, we can point to the time in our life, the, the camp that we went to, the VBS we were a part of, the, maybe the Sunday where the sermon clicked for you, or the, the gospel message at the end got you, or 
maybe it was just a circumstance and and you kind of remember how God brought you to himself through that circumstance. You hear, you, you know, you can look back on that time. You say before that, know Jesus. And, and after that, I'm in the year of my Lord now. That was before Christ. Now I'm in the year of my Lord. Psalm 22 gives us a picture, even though it's a foreshadow. And it's even a faint foreshadow. Again, this is not a psalm that's telling us about the manger on Christmas morning. It's not that. It's giving us a foreshadow of that division in our lives. Because surprisingly, Psalm 22 has a hard break toward the middle. A a time when the psalmist suddenly, something clicks for him. And everything's different. And really nothing's different. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's read the whole psalm this morning. Psalm 22. Let me get some water first. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horn's of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. 
All the families of the nations will bow before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. Verses 1 through 21 give us the B.C. view. Before Christ, before God enters the situation. We see a a number of, of angsty issues here uh, for for David Uh, he begins with pain in contradiction in verses one through five see David knows the truth about God he knows he knows God well he knows who he is He, he knows what God does and doesn't do he knows his character and yet here he sits my God my God why have you abandoned me the, the, the contradiction here is, on the one hand, he says, my God, my God, and on the other, you abandoned me. Well, which is it, David? Is he your God, or has he abandoned you? And David would say, yes, he has, and he is, and he doesn't know why. Whatever the situation is, and we don't know what the circumstance is for Psalm 22, Whatever it is, it's it's probably something to do with Saul. That's why we're reading it in this section of of Scripture. He also had plenty of family issues to deal with, so it could have been that as well. Whatever the situation is, God hasn't shown up. God hasn't changed the circumstances. God hasn't fixed things in David's life. And he cannot understand why God has not acted. But he knows God has always been faithful. You're holy. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted. Three times, he says, their forefathers or his forefathers trusted in God. And yet, just this verse before, he's saying, why have you abandoned me? Why am I different from everybody else, God? I don't understand this. There's, There's a contradiction here. I'm the king of your people, and you've abandoned me. You put me in this position. You called me to this, and you abandoned me. Why have you done that? Why have you left me? And for David, understand that the problem isn't really God's presence. He doesn't believe God isn't there. He doesn't understand why God isn't acting. It's not God's presence, but his lack of action that is throwing David off. I know you're faithful. I know you've always been with your people, and I know you're with your people now. Why aren't you doing something, God? You've abandoned me. And I don't understand why. Verses 6 through 8, David talks about his wretched condition. I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned. Everyone who sees me mocks me. He understands who he is, and, and we can all relate to this verse. I mean, there's uh, even a, a, a hymn, uh, is it At the Cross, um, where the line is, uh, 
I can't remember what goes around it, but for such a worm as I, we sing that, that Jesus would die for such a worm as I. We understand who we are. David knew who he was. He, he knew how bad he could be. He, he knew that God had brought him from that, and God worked by his grace in his life every day. But he knew who he was. But then he couldn't understand why God's not acting in this situation. God's supposed to be faithful, even when I'm not. And he looks around, and these people are saying, there's no way God's with him. Look at what he's going through. How could God be his God? How could God care about him? They mock him. They sneer. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. How often do people do that to us? And I'm not even talking about lost people. I'm talking about people in the church. We shoot our wounded. Well, if something bad's happening, they must not be right with the Lord. If God's not doing this or that for them, he says he's one of God's children. Why isn't God doing something about that? Not enough faith, sin in his life. We're Job's friends most of the time. Or we're Job's wife. Curse God and die. Get it over with. David is in a grim situation. And the people say, if you're in such a situation, wouldn't God act if he was your God? If he was faithful, if he was as good as you say, or rather, if you were his to begin with, wouldn't God save you? David goes on in verses 9 and 10 to talk about his past knowledge of God. It was you who brought me out of the womb. I was given to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. We've, we've had this relationship, David says, and that makes the current situation even worse. I'm going through this. I, I know who you are. I've been yours. I've always been yours. And yet, you're doing this. If, if God had been distant his entire life, then David would not have been surprised that suddenly God was distant. If God had not acted in his life before, it wouldn't be a shock that God wasn't acting in his life now. But he's looking around saying, this is not who we were, God. I wonder, and I would say this for some of us, I'd say this for a lot of people, not David. But I think here, we, when we hear people echoing David's words, why would God do this to me? I wonder if we shouldn't lovingly and in the right situation and with the right words and within the right relationship begin to probe a little bit and wonder and ask, what is your knowledge of God? Is he this heavenly vending machine that when you need something you go to him but there's no relationship do you have a partial knowledge of God and I think if again not David's words or not in the mouth of David but in the mouth of other people we say well why isn't God doing this and and or they say why isn't God doing this and 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 we should say yes but but do you is your knowledge of God complete? 
I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I, 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 I tread carefully here because, well, Michael, doesn't it sound like you're shooting our wounded again? And no, no, we know the people who are believers, or we should have a good idea, the people who, who uh, we, we've grown up with, we've known for years, we know their faith, we know their relationship with Jesus, and then something bad happens. But we also know those in life who give no indication of trusting Christ, no uh, indication of a relationship with the Lord, but they want to use his name in vain, what really that commandment is talking about, use his name to get something, to fix something. They're not his, they have no relationship with him, but why are you doing this to me, God? And the, the question would be is, why would, why would you think he would do anything differently why would he step in when you've ignored him for however long that's harsh that's mean i know that and 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 at least it sounds that way but it is a an understanding that we all have to come to at some point there there is a time if especially if we are an unbeliever into adulthood we begin to look around and go why is god doing this to me and and you have to answer answer the question do do i have a relationship with him through christ maybe he's not doing this to me maybe this is just what i'm going through now and it's an opportunity for me to turn to him he's getting my attention i have a partial knowledge david didn't again i, I like i said i don't want to do damage to the text here but this is where my head went as I thought about this, preparing. But he says to, to, to the Lord, you've known me, we've known each other. And then verses 11 through 18, he, he lists uh, many of the, the fights of life that, that we can all uh, uh, relate to. He, he uses imagery of animals circling and mauling and and fighting and, and, and opening their mouths and that sort of thing. Uh, it, it basically, what we see in the verses 11 through 18 is a, an attack from every direction. Everywhere he looks, something bad is happening. Everywhere he goes, something is wrong. You have those days? I think we might. It, you know, it's, it's from friends on this side and family on the other, and it's a health problem, and it's a, you know, we don't have enough to eat, as he goes through here, and not enough to drink, not enough finances, mental health. As a matter of fact, the, the, uh, the language for the Middle East, as folks had read this when he wrote it, they would have probably heard less about uh, physical people because of his use of the animal imagery. They might have even heard demons or inner demons i mean paul uh, rather david is covering the gambit here of what could be going wrong in life basically he's seven and saying in these eight verses if it can go wrong it has in my life if we read the psalms we we hear a, a guy who well had some emotional swings right we're going to see it right here in the, this, ver, in this, uh, 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 this psalm. He's going to go from the depths to the heights at the stroke of a pen. When we get to verse 21, David has been there. 
At this point, he is there. He's saying, look around. I look around and I see every problem and I don't see God. He's just not there. He's not stepping in. So after 18 verses of stating the problem, this passage, including some verses that Jesus, uh, that the New Testament uses to describe what went on on and around the cross when Jesus was crucified. So in, in describing the problem and in, in listing all the, the issues, Paul come, uh, David comes, I'm going to call him Paul every time apparently, David comes to the end of it and says, but you, Lord. We get to the plea, we get to the begging. He's done the description. I don't know where you are, you've abandoned me, you're not stepping in, you're not doing anything. All of this is wrong, and you are nowhere to be found but you, Lord. Verse 19, don't be far away. He's beginning to make the turn. We've not done the 180 that we're about to do yet. But if, 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 if we're going straight, we, we've just slightly curved when he gets to this plea. But you, Lord. Now what makes him think that God's going to answer him now? He, he's not been with him through all of this. Verse 1, you've abandoned me. Why does he suddenly think God is going to step in. Well, he doesn't know. I mean, he, he knows or he, he hopes he knows or he, he kind of wishes he hopes he knows, but he doesn't know because God hasn't stepped in yet. But, but he knows. And so he takes his plea to the only one he can. Even in his abandonment, David knows he has only one, capital O, to turn to. He can only turn to God. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, and he ain't talking about his own, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. God, step in and save me from all of these fights of life, everything that has gone on, everything that is going on, stay, save me. And when we get to the end of the plea, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, and David's realization, and I think it is a realization, I think that's what God does in prayer. When we pray, when we come to him, and we just puke, everything that's going on in life right there at his feet. I'm jumping back. You do that to me, I'm going to the other room. Right? And instead, Jesus figuratively holds our hair. I know, guys, we don't all have long hair. Some of guys, we, we don't have hair at all. <coughs> but figuratively, Jesus comes down and gets in the mess with us and says, you done? You've got it all out now. Now what do you need? What do you need me to do? Where, what, what do you, not, what, not, eh, 
but not what do you need me to do, what do you need? Because we think we need him to do something. And really, we just have a need. And we see the turn in the psalm. And we see the comfort David has knowing and expecting the dawn of a new day. And it's all different the rest of the way. We might say that verse 21 begins A.D., the year of our Lord, Anno Domine. David suddenly says, you answered me. Now, look with me at all the different ways God fixed all the things that David complained about. Okay, we're done. He didn't. There's no indication when we keep reading... There's no indication. It doesn't say you you took this away and you did this. It doesn't say that you you have calmed my fears. It doesn't say that no longer do I have the mental distress. Have I controlled my inner demons or anything like that. There's there's nothing about a, a concrete, tangible act on the part of the Lord here. What we have really is an answer with no change in verses 21 through 24. You've heard me. You answered me, rather. You answered me. I will proclaim. I will praise. All y'all praise. Honor him. Revere him. Because he hasn't despised me. He hasn't hidden his face from me. Where's your proof, David? Where is the evidence that he has done anything in your life? And David would answer, I said, I look around and I don't have it. I don't see it, but I know. Because I know my Lord. David knew his Savior would show up. David had that confidence because he had known God from the, the, the womb. From the time he left, he had been the Lord's. He had known what God had done with his fathers. He knows how God works. And even in the the midst of his abandonment, even when he knew that God was nowhere to be found, God was right there. And God would step in. A.D. On Christmas morning, God stepped in. Again, Right, we're, we're looking at this psalm through Christmas. I'm not telling you that the psalm is talking about the birth of the baby. I'm telling you, on this side of Christmas, on this side of the cross, looking backwards, this is what we know when we read this psalm. On Christmas morning, God stepped in, and that baby changed nothing and everything. Nothing and everything. Just like what we see in this passage in verse 21. Nothing changed and everything changed. Nothing changed in David's circumstances, yet every, excuse me, everything changed in David's perspective. The morning that baby came, nothing changed. Rome was still in charge. Herod was still a heretic and an idiot. And there was still poverty. And there was still mass uh, upheaval. And there were still problems. And there was still sin. And, and that baby was just a blip, if we consider the star, just a blip 
on the radar. And it wasn't even a blip on most people's radars. I, I think I've told you before that the whole, we wonder why, or some folks have wondered why the whole massacre of infants two years and younger doesn't make the history books. Well, because Bethlehem was like this big. And he, that probably ended up killing something like a dozen babies, which is a tragedy. But it wouldn't have made the history books. It wasn't like it was countrywide. It was just a few. This was a non-event, this baby being born. He was just another poor kid in poor circumstances whose life was in, in, and whose parents' lives were in the midst of upheaval, upheaval because of the government. It's the same old story. And yet everything changed that morning because nothing would ever be the same. Joseph and Mary knew it. We don't know exactly what they knew. They knew they didn't have much to do with this or nothing to do with this. The shepherds knew something had changed. The wise men would get there in a couple of years. They had realized it. Something, it was, something was different. But Herod knew something was up but didn't know what. Nothing he would want to see. Certainly nothing he liked. Nothing changed. And everything changed. And then praise came down from the assembly. And again, I'm, I'm a little shoehorning here. He says, I will praise you in the assembly. That morning, the angels praised. The, the assembly came down and praised. Not a prophecy. But as we look at that psalm through the lens of Christmas, we see the praise coming down. And what changed was, though it couldn't be seen, though we weren't, they didn't know it all at the time, and certainly David didn't know it then, there was a change in the established order of things in verses 25 through 29. Things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they have been. Some things are topsy-turvy, and and we, the, we see the, in verses 25 through 29, we see the outcast welcomed. We see the lowly honored. We see the exalted humbled. And what we see is the ground leveled at the cross. We're not even seeing the cross yet, but we see the leveling of the ground. We see the preparation for what God is going to do. Where every one of us comes to Christ, comes to the Lord with the same amount of of good to offer him. Nothing. None. Zero. So rich, poor, high status, low status, perfectly healthy and strong and like me, or, uh, or weak and, and, okay, like me, weak and fat and lazy like me, or, you know, whatever. You don't bring anything to the Lord that the Lord needs. It doesn't matter who or what you are. And that morning the ground was leveled in preparation for what God was going to do. And, and we see that in the Christmas story. The, the shepherds got there first. The lowliest, the, the outcast. We, we can go through Christ's life and see who he hung out with. He didn't hang out with the uppity-ups. 
He hung out with the lowlifes and the discards. The ones who didn't, the rest of the people said, you hang out with sinners. And, and Jesus was all, these are my people. This is, this is who I'm here for. But he wasn't just here for them. He was here for the uppity-ups. And the opportunity came. The Magi came and worshipped. Maybe not even sure what they were worshipping, but they came and they worshipped. So that baby who changed nothing and changed everything changed the established order. And then verses 30 and 30 through 31, 30 and 31. David's savior is a savior for all time. David instinctively knew, that's the Holy Spirit, yeah, we know that. But David knew, y'all, this isn't just about me. The the God who saves isn't just here to save me because I'm the king of Israel or the soon-to-be king of Israel whenever he wrote this psalm. This isn't just something for me, nor is it something to keep for myself. Time was divided for good the day that baby was born. We forever now look backwards. We'll always be in the 20s and the 30s if Jesus tarries and 40, 4,000s and five, whoever. But it's always going to be that zero point. Time was divided for good. When Jesus showed up, lives are divided for everyone, for all of us. Every life has the opportunity to experience the great divider. David says, their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. It's us. We get to experience the dividing work of Christ today. And David knew that his Savior that was coming from his salvation, that was coming from his God, was more than just a personal Savior for him. It was a Savior for the world. It was a salvation for the world. The God that could fix things for him can fix things for everybody, even if things aren't fixed. Remember, Nothing has been repaired as far as we know in the psalm. David is banking on a promise. David is banking on the character of God. That's what he is uh, trusting in. Not his own eyes to see that God will do it, or, 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 or how God will do it, or even that God can do it, He is trusting that God will. It's never a doubt about it, can he? And it doesn't matter how he, he knows that will he? Yes, that is what God is going to do. We are the yet to be born. And when we read this psalm from uh, through the lens of Christmas, 2,000 years removed, we see, we understand, we know That it was only the advent of Christ that fulfilled completely David's hope. Again, he didn't quite know 
what he was expecting. He didn't quite know how God was going to do it. But God did it more and better than he could have ever imagined. David prayed for the generations yet to be born, and, and, and we get it. And today we celebrate. We begin the celebration. If, if, you are, if you're an Orthodox Southerner, then you started celebrating Christmas Friday. Yes. But if you're a heretic like me, you've been listening to Christmas music since September. And that's okay. That's the one heresy that's acceptable in church. Because we celebrate that gift every day. And we know that was the only thing that could fix David. It's the only advent, or, or rather, the, uh, it is only the advent of Christ in us that can fulfill our hope. David knew only God could do it. Nothing has changed about that. So we look around, and, and we can't, we, we've said it enough, and yet we can't stop saying it. There's nothing normal about this time. This, this holiday season is like nothing we've experienced, I don't think. And it's, it's getting old. The, we've, the word unprecedented is way too precedented now. And yet I think we could stand with David and say on every side there's something. It's bulls and lions and dogs and oxen and viruses and hurricanes and whatever else. And that's not even getting into the minutiae of your personal lives and, and relationships that, that we likely know nothing about as a group, but you struggle with daily, friends and family, and then those inner demons. The only thing that can fulfill the hope of overcoming is Jesus. And let me say, that if you ask Jesus into your heart today, if you never have, and you don't have a relationship with him, you've, you've never experienced that saving work of faith in your life, and you do that today, nothing will change and everything will change. I can't promise you that suddenly all the relationships are fixed. Hurricanes won't go away. It won't, there won't be a sudden instant cure to the, to the virus. The, the addictions, the psychological strains, the inner demons that are a fight daily won't suddenly disappear. Can they? Sure, God can do anything. Will he? I don't know. But will he be there? Yes. And that will change everything. So this year, let this Christmas 
let this advent of Christ to earth, if he has never, if you've never experienced salvation before, let it be the advent of Christ into your heart. And know that everything changes no matter what it looks like when it seems nothing changes. You can experience that salvation. You can know that hope once you have understood where you are personally. Understand that the result, the, the, the dogs and the, the demons and everything else that's around you, the, all of this, even hurricanes and viruses, are a result of our sin. But even if your sin didn't cause those things, your sin is the problem. That is, that's your barrier between you and God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of those sins is death. Uh, we, as a church, buried a, a church member just a couple of days ago. Her death was a result of sin. Her death was a result of a weak heart that was uh, exacerbated by a deadly virus. But her death was really the result of sin. But that's not even the death we're talking about. As painful as that is, both physically to the person who experiences it most of the time, it is painful to us to go through. But that's not even the worst death. The death that Jesus comes to save us from is eternal death, separation from God. And the gift we receive in Christ is eternal life, eternal relationship with God. And he proves that love for us. And that while we were still sinners, he died for us. When we were still verses 1 through 21, he died for us. Assuming 1 through 21 is a lost person. David wasn't. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, think of it that way. He died for us. Believer, A.D., whenever the time was in your life, A.D., after Anno Domine, the year of our Lord, whatever year you're in of your Lord, 150, 70, doesn't matter. He's still proving his love to you. Because that cross, that baby, is still the evidence of your hope. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart Christ, uh, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from the sin that, that defeats us, saved from the sin that kills us, and saved from the eternal death that will, could one day separate us. This morning, unbeliever, watching online, here in our hollowed out gym, respond to him. Make today the divider. Yesterday was B.C. This morning was B.C. Up to about 11.45, and then at 11.45, on November 29th, 2020, you began A.D. Believer, know that you're living in your A.D. Even on the days when it feels B.C. 
when you are in verses 1 through 21, know the promise of 21 through 31. God with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for the guarantee. God, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for being the great divider in our lives. And Lord, that division, no matter how late or how early, comes with the same guarantee of an eternity with you. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this morning, that if there's someone listening that has never trusted Jesus, they will do that simple confession of sin, statement of need, Jesus, I need you to save me. Do that today. I want you to be my Lord. I give you my life. And that's it. And it, it, is, it is a belief that saves. And I pray that they would do that. God, I pray for the believer this morning who knows they're living in A.D., but life feels like B.C. Lord, I pray that they could have the turn just like David when in a moment the hope and the knowledge of who you are changes everything even if it changes nothing. God, we as believers need to be reminded that we're living in A.D. And you will never leave us because we are yours. Speak to our hearts as we sing this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our songs this morning primarily expressed that need. Uh, oh, come, all you unfaithful, you hurting, you broken, you, you, you barren. King of heaven, come down, the first song we sang. Even the Christmas offering, the, our offering is little to nothing as we come to the Lord. And then... Uh, uh, o come, O come, Emmanuel is next, and come thou, uh, fa no, come thou long expected Jesus. Thank you, I should have written that down. All expressing the hope, the promise, but the great need, even of believers in A.D. So this morning, as we sing, let God work on your heart. And know this, mor this morning the joy of living in the year of our Lord, living in our A.D. Let's worship him this morning.